Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Dr. Chris Thornburg. Dr. Thornburg is a founding partner at Beacon Economics. He is the director of UC Riverside School of Business for Economic Forecasting and Development. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for passing judgment with us. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a podcast about politics and the law. And in so many ways, politics is really dependent on economics and economics, I think, also on politics in some ways. And I, I always think about that famous line by Bill Clinton's advisor, James Carville. It's the economy, stupid. So tell us a little bit about our economy. Let's start 30,000 foot view. How would you describe the current state of the U.S. economy and Wrapped into that, are we facing historic inequality? If you go back to the beginning of this, the forecasts that came out were incredibly grim. Uh, there were folks talking about multiple quarters of negative growth. You had forecasters talking about double-digit unemployment rates going into 2022. You had the Congressional Budget Office calling this a decade-long hit to the U.S. labor markets incredibly scary headlines, to say the least, if you are a business person or just a, a resident of the United States. And of course, I would argue that those predictions, for the most part, have proven largely and very wrong. For example, just take the idea of the downturn itself. A lot of folks said that what happened at the start of the pandemic was a depression-like collapse in economic activity. That is true, with one mild exception. Um, a depression lasts years. This depression lasted weeks. The recession began in February. That was the peak of the last business cycle. And the bottom, the trough, uh, that hit in April. So we saw about a 14% decline in economic activity over seven weeks. And since that period of time, the economy has come back at a very rapid pace. To put that in sort of in, in, in better view, consider the fact that the 31% negative growth rate in the second quarter was followed by a 33% positive growth rate in the third, something that almost no economists have predicted at the start of this thing. As for those who are declaring that unemployment would be in double digits in 2022, well, it's approaching 6% as we approach the end of 2020. In other words, the labor markets have come back incredibly strong, much more rapidly than ever before. Economic activity has bounced back much faster than ever before. It isn't say we're out of the woods, but the economy has shown a degree of resilience that nobody really anticipated. So why is that? I mean, it, that seems to me from the outside to be the case too, which is it was just uh, clearly people are suffering and we're going to talk about that. I mean, it's not all sunshine and flowers, but why are we resilient? Well, it's not a Great Recession-type scenario. It's completely different than the Great Recession. That's what we've been saying right from the get-go. Now, the reason so many forecasters and, and policymakers got panicked about this thing is that you saw unemployment rate go up to 14.7% in two months. And that's the highest number since the real Great Depression back in the 1930s. But again, this unemployment rate was not like the unemployment rate, say, that we saw during the Great Recession. Um, the vast majority of people who were unemployed at the beginning of this thing were on temporary layoff. They didn't actually lose their job. 
Rather, their job was simply not available for them in the short run until the business figured out how to navigate this pandemic world we live in right now. Um, And thus, looking at, say, what happened in the Great Recession, where unemployment went very high and stayed high for a long time, that just wasn't an apt, shall we say, metaphor for what's happening this time around. You couldn't use the lessons of past business cycles to guide your thinking in this business cycle. Uh, That's why, for example, we just threw out the typical vector autoregression model. That's the technical, you know, voodoo that we use on our computers to try and create these forecasts. Those models inherently use the past as a, if you will, a lens on which to examine what's going on right now. The past is not in any way, shape or form like what's happening right now. What I used when I first started considering this was a, a kind of a, the idea that this is a global natural disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is to say, clearly tragic from a human perspective. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you think about the millions of people globally who have lost their lives or indeed maybe ending up with long-term health issues as a result of COVID-19. But on the other side of it, it's also worth noting that um, natural disasters don't create long-run economic cycles. If you look at hurricanes or earthquakes or other forms of natural disasters, they have a similarly incredibly sharp short-run impact, but very little in the form of long-run impacts. Now, the question yet again is why? Why is it different? Well, the best way of thinking about that is to think about why the Great Recession was the worst downturn since World War II. Why did it hurt the U.S. economy so badly? The answer is really not so much in the recession itself, but what happened prior to the Great Recession. Remember the six years, the 2001 to 2007, that massive subprime bubble that ripped through the U.S. economy, $15 trillion in debt entered this economy in short order, a pace we had really never seen before. And of course, much of that debt entered the households with almost no underwriting whatsoever. Well, that massive amount of money that piled into the economy created structural changes that were simply not sustainable. In that run-up, we, 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 we borrowed too much. We built too many homes. We bought too many cars and boats. We, did, we, we created all sorts of jobs and industries that, again, just couldn't be there in the long run because the drivers of that massive growth spurt were simply not sustainable, right? So it's the difference between a structural problem that is looming and is going to take about a decade to recover from and something more like an earthquake that causes a huge, obviously, shift, but doesn't undermine the pillars of the economy, if I'm hearing well, you correctly. Yeah, I wouldn't quite say it that way, because when you think about the run to the Great Recession, remember, the problem was all that growth from 2001 to 2007 was built on rotten foundations of this this subprime scandal, swindle, whatever you want to call it. The greatest financial fraud perpetuated in the history of the planet is what it was. Yet, you know, we didn't have that this time. In fact, for all the chaos, political chaos we've seen in the few years leading up to this particular situation, 
the U.S. economy was actually trucking along at a, at a, at a modest but really solid sort of way. We, we had good, steady growth. We, in fact, the last couple of years prior to the pandemic, you think of what was going on. We had record low unemployment rate for multiple years. We had more job openings than we had people looking for work. We had uh, really even, say, for example, income inequality, believe it or not, had actually started to reverse itself. Uh, you saw, because of those incredibly tight labor markets, some of the greatest wage gains occurring for low-skilled workers in the United States. So it really was uh, a pretty good couple of years from an economic perspective, again, despite all that political chaos going on. Yeah. And you use the word inequality, which you rightly disentangled my first two questions. I said, basically, tell us about the economy and now tell us about inequality. But now... Do tell us about inequality because we've talked about how the economy is resilient. And I think you've explained why this is not a typical recession situation. But the statistics I saw this morning, I'm talking to you from Los Angeles, is that one in four families have suffered from some sort of food instability, which is, of course, just a polite way of saying somebody in their home uh, is or is about to be hungry. And that that has happened since the pandemic. That seems to me to at least indicate that the economy is not remarkably resilient for everyone. Well, I got to tell you, not not to be cynical, but the kind of surveys that lead to the statistic you just cited me are, are surveys that in many ways don't line up with any basic understanding of, of other other statistical sources we have. Um one in four families are facing hunger in the United States. 25% of households facing hunger issues. Uh, that makes no sense to me. Um, look, the unemployment rate right now in the United States is about 6.5%. That doesn't account for 25% of families going hungry. That, that doesn't really make much sense to me. Um, it is true that incomes have gone down a bit, but... Oddly, not nearly as much as you might think. Indeed, even though, say, employment, payroll employment is about 6% below where it was pre-pandemic right now, overall earned income, according to data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, is only not about a percent and a half. Uh, and actually, when you look at the numbers, one of the biggest upticks in terms of retail sales has actually been for supermarkets. Now, I realize that's because people can't eat out of restaurants. But none of these data would suggest that one in four families is going hungry in the United States. So it's so, not in the United yeah. States, it's in L.A. But so how right. are we to, I mean, so this was reported by MSNBC. I think CBS also reported yeah. it. Well, I mean, how are we to know what to believe then? Well, it, that, look, they, they, they cite that because it makes a good headline, not because it's statistically trustworthy. Let, let me give you another um, shall we say, uh, what I would call <laughs> conventional wisdom that is neither conventional nor is it wisdom. Um, you know, for the last bunch of years, there's been this number rolling around the United States that 60% of Americans couldn't scrape together $400 for an emergency expense, right? And what's interesting is that that came out of a, of a survey that was done by the Federal Reserve, and it wasn't a well worded question. They'd even acknowledge that. And it didn't match up other answers in that survey about, in other words, people who answered, no, I couldn't come up with $400 for an emergency expense 
on other places on that survey suggested they had way more than $400 available to them if they needed it. Um, but it's a government agency. They had to put out the entire survey, which they did. And even though the authors of the survey were very clear that this question was poorly worded, people didn't interpret it right, the answer is clearly wrong, the press grabbed onto that, and it has become a go-to headline about how 60% of Americans can't scrape together $400, despite the fact that it's just wrong. It's not true. That's not a real statistic. Now, it isn't to say in any way, shape, or form that there aren't families out there suffering, both in the long run and, of course, as a result of, of this particular situation. But we put these headlines together. I mean, 25% of American households going hungry. Does that smell right to you? Or even in Los Angeles County, does that seem right? Of course it doesn't seem right. Every visual reference would not suggest that that true numbers anywhere close to that. Yet we just continue to pretend it's true when clearly it's not. Well, I mean, I don't think we should take my word for whether something seems right. I mean, my word is that I look at the lines that are hours and hours long for people who are outside a food bank or outside of, you know, another basically food giveaway because that's the only way they're going to get a Christmas dinner. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think we should go by what looks right to me. I mean, I think that we should go by what the numbers actually tell us. Well, again, I, I, not to push back here, but, but that it just, when you look at the available statistics on employment and income, we have not seen the economy collapse at a degree that could possibly explain that statistic. It, it just doesn't make any sense from any objective economic standpoint. So I could spend more time talking to you about this, but I know we don't have infinite time. And I want to get to something that I hear a lot from presidents who are Democrats, Republicans, voters seem to believe this. It's this idea that presidents take credit for good economies, and then they tend to kind of look the other way or point a finger when there's a bad economy. And you know, President Trump long touted the economy before COVID-19, of course. And that seemed to be, I thought this was the reason that he ultimately would be reelected. And he, of course, spent his most recent State of the Union, I think, a majority of the time on the economy. And I think that's why a lot of people stayed with him. How much of the economy really is dependent on actions that the president takes? Um, the, the president has almost no control over the economy. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 you know, to your point, look, the, the first three years of, of Trump's presidency and the last three year of, of Barack Obama's presidency, statistically, were exactly the same. Um, the growth trends, the changes in stock market prices and any kind of just percent change standpoint, they were exactly the same. So Trump inherited a very good economy and you know, despite his best efforts, wasn't able to derail it. Um, he, you know, he, he didn't really accomplish much of anything while he was in office. Well, I would argue he accomplished an enormous amount, just very little of it is positive. But, <laughs> um, Touché. Touché. but, but that, that'll be a, an entirely different episode. Sure. Now, when the pandemic hit, our leaders did 
take action. I mean, it, you know, I have, I always talk to my students and they say, well, our leaders never act. And I say they do in times of scandals or great disasters. And it seems to me that in March when they acted, they did provide some sort of real relief to the American people. But I'm hoping that you can kind of situate that March relief package before we get to what's going on right now. And, Mm -hmm. you know, was, did they do what they should have done? Um, Okay, (laughs) let's start there. (laughs) Look, I am frustrated by a couple things. Um, While I agree, they did get into action quickly. And some of the things they did were were clearly helpful. There's no doubt about it. I would also argue that um, a lot of the things they did were not terribly helpful. And in many ways, um, the reason we haven't felt, if you will, much of the first stimulus and the potential impact it could have had on the U.S. economy was because it was so poorly conceived. Look, let's think about what that first stimulus package was about, right? Um, Obviously, expansion of unemployment, that was spot on right. You cannot argue that. Let's help those people who need help, the people who lost income, who lost jobs, Stepping up and helping those folks is what government needed to do in this particular circumstance. Um, And I completely applaud that. But then you go the next step. And let's think about some of the other things they did. Um, The PPP loans that went out that not to businesses, by the way, who could prove they were being harmed. Those went to businesses who happened to be closest to their banker and their accountant because those are the ones who got first in line, right, to get the loans. Not anything having to do whether or not they needed it. And then you can go the next step and look at both the last time and maybe possibly this time, this just handing out of checks to American households, again, regardless of whether or not you're actually suffering in the midst of this particular pandemic recession. Um, Those policies are remarkably... Uh, uh, illogical. Because think about when you do a PPP loan that just goes to anybody and checks that go to everybody. Now, remember, right now, the unemployment rate in the U.S. is about six and a half percent. Here in California, it's about nine percent. That means most people are still working. Most people are still earning money. And yet these people are being given more money. Now, remember, the problem in the pandemic is that people can't spend money, right? I mean, you can't go to your restaurant, famous restaurant. It's closed. You can't take the family to Disneyland. You can't get on a plane and go for that wonderful Paris vacation that certain households have the, have the desire and, and, of course, financial ability to do. Um, you're giving these families money when their problem is they can't spend money. That's pushing on a string. That's not stimulus. That's just borrowing money basically on behalf of these households through the federal government and and just giving them cash. So the vast majority of the the stimulus, the first stimulus, never had a positive impact on the economy. It just went straight into people's checking accounts. And that's exactly what you've seen. The the first stimulus was enormous. I mean, we're talking two and a half trillion dollars in spending. The banking system saw a 
$3 trillion increase in deposits in the last eight months. $3 trillion. That's, we've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen the huge buildup of, of wealth. And remember, it's not just all that cash sitting there. Home prices are accelerating. The stock market's back up. In fact, in the third quarter of this year, household wealth has never been higher as a result of basically how good the financial markets are. Now, all that cash is sitting there. And the good news is at some point in time, it will help. Our hypothesis has been all along that when we do get control over this virus, as we, of course, get these vaccines rolled out and inoculate people, say it's, you know, April, May, June of next year, when we get to the point where we can reopen the economy in earnest, well, that money is going to start being spent and we will get our economy rocking and rolling. It's there. The first stimulus didn't fail. It just hasn't been given an opportunity to work yet. Now, here we go into another round of stimulus, and they're talking a trillion, maybe a trillion and a half if they go and turn around and, and up the, the payments to individuals from $600 to $2,000, the way that, that Trump is requesting right now. And yet again, you have to ask yourself, why are we doing this? What is the point of giving people more money that they don't need? Now. Well- some people yeah. need it, right? I mean, so well, what should I, I they agree, have done? But for every person who needs it, there are eight people who are getting it. And that's the problem, right? Right. right. And if you focused the stimulus on helping those families that really needed it, this would be much more effective. But instead, we're, we're firehosing the economy with money, and most of that's just being wasted. So is the problem that it wasn't, it was just structured the wrong way or it wasn't targeted enough? Would you have had a totally different model where you didn't send checks to people? Oh, I, yeah, absolutely not. I, I would have focused almost exclusively, almost exclusively on two things. Unemployment, expanding the unemployment programs, no doubt about it. That is incredibly important. Let's help those folks who are on the front line of this thing who have lost hours or lost their job completely, those are the folks we should be helping. We know they're in need, right? So let's help them, number one. And then, of course, number two, there is, of course, the argument about helping those businesses that, again, truly need help. And that isn't law firms. That isn't consulting firms. That isn't the legion of companies who were first in line to get these PPP loans. you, you, You could not have imagined a more poorly structured stimulus program than that first and and now this second stimulus package. So I sense you're not a fan of the packages. I I hear that. Now, are we an outlier? I mean, is there a country where you say, actually, they did it right? They did a good job here. Oh, Europe has been much smarter about this. Yeah. Yeah, First of all, Europe uh, has not indulge in the kind of excessive borrowing and, 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 and spending that we have. Uh, they already have a very, very good uh, social support system. Unemployment benefits over there are considerably more generous than ours are. Uh, that, of course, helped immediately, right? Much quicker than, than what we had going on over here. Uh, and thus, they did in some ways didn't even have to think about it. But then remember, the European economy, when you think about the EU, it is a little bit larger than the United States. And overall, their stimulus plan was a little less than a trillion dollars. 
in other words, they needed less money and it mainly was spent on places that really needed it. And almost assuredly, they will come out of it just as fast as we will. The main difference is they're not going to have, of course, all this government debt buildup. Now, mind you, we had a little bit more space under the cap than they did because we have not been, uh, shall we say, quite as spendthrift over the last three, four, five decades as Europe has. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when we come out of this, we're going to look very similar to Europe in the amount of federal debt we have relative to the size of our economy. And it is scary. Um, I've been amazed that very few people have discussed the idea, the simple idea, that all this money we're borrowing right now is not free. Our children and grandchildren are going to have to pay it back. And somehow or other, there doesn't seem to be any conversation about the consequences of the federal government borrowing five to six trillion dollars in two years, particularly when we're 10 years from, of course, Social Security and Medicare coming close to insolvency. Well, let's talk about it. I mean, what are the consequences? So on the most basic level, what I understand is that we have a huge deficit. And suddenly, you know, this seems to me to be one of the kind of least intellectually honest places of politics where we care about it sometimes, we don't care about the deficit others, and we seem to have virtually no consistency. But what does it mean? I mean, you said we're essentially doing this on the backs of our kids and grandkids. So for people who are listening at home, I think the idea that we have this looming deficit just feels really abstract. And, you know, the amount of money that each family owes, it it doesn't feel like it has any concrete effect on our daily lives. And I'm hoping that you can give this, put a little meat on the bones of what these figures really mean. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that is the danger of government debt, right? Because if it was our debt, if it was on our balance sheet, if we had to make a monthly payment, we would take it personally, right? We would really think about it. But when you really want to talk about where the problems are, It's the promises we've made to seniors that this country cannot afford to meet in the future. Look, boomers are starting to retire en masse right now, and they are going to put an incredible strain on the system because they're getting tons of benefits, but they didn't have enough children to pay for those benefits. The baby boom was the end of the population pyramid, and after the baby boom, we've become a population column. The number of millennials out there is only a couple percentage larger than the number of boomers. As boomers retire, you're going to see a collapse in the support ratio, even as government spending on those entitlement programs goes through the roof. Now, when is the day of reckoning? Nobody really knows. Could be 2030, could be 2035, could be 2028 for all we know. Bond markets work in mysterious ways. But we know it's out there. We know there's a problem and we know we need to start getting in front of it. Yet, as opposed to getting in front of it, we are making the problem worse by doing the things we're doing today, acting as if there are no consequences. And to be clear, the pandemic has put stress on on the system, but it wasn't just the pandemic. Even before the pandemic arrived, the federal government was already lined up to borrow $1 trillion in the last federal fiscal year. A trillion dollars. That's almost as much as Barack Obama was borrowing in the midst of the Great Recession when you needed fiscal policy. So yeah, it it does, of course, get to the idea that, as you said, 
It's funny how there's one party out there that loves deficits when they're in power and hate it when they're not. Yeah, there just is no honor among thieves. And this was when a hundred thousand years ago when I was an economics major, this is one of the things that was so distressing is that you have politicians uh, whose jobs depend on a popularity contest helping to set economic policy. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and you've given me almost no hope that that actually is a good, uh, a, a good framework. So th- thank you for that. So before we turn to the Biden administration, I wanted to talk about one other way that we are an outlier. We talked about how Europe has been reacting to the COVID pandemic and how they've really had a much more targeted response. But the other graphs that I keep seeing that always startle me is the number of people who have lost unemployment, or excuse me, the number of people who have lost medical insurance as a result of the pandemic. And in Europe, it's essentially flat. And in the US, it's very, very high. Does it make sense to couple having a job employment with having medical insurance? No, of course not. <laughs> um, as an economist, I, I, I don't think I, I identify very well with, with, shall we say, either side of the debate. Um, I often will say things that, that the people on the left don't like and for such as, for example, telling you that no, 25% of people in LA County are not hungry. Then I'll go turn around and tell you the things that the right doesn't like. And and by the way, you can cut this out if you want. Um, nope, this is staying. Yeah. <laughs> but to be clear, single payer systems are, of course, the way you need to go. Um, it, and it's not just a function of who's insured and who's not insured. Um, obviously, that is a problem, having a bunch of uninsured people. There's no doubt about it. Uh, even if a lot of those uninsured people are young people who are choosing to be uninsured, which which was the case before, before Obamacare. But more specifically, my problem with healthcare in the United States is, is less about the insurance aspect and more about the cost aspect. Look, you look at places like Japan or France or Germany, and you see healthcare that is easily as good as what we have in the United States, and it's half the price per person. And you're talking about spending $12,000, $13,000 on healthcare for every person in the United States right now. And then you look again over in Europe and you're talking six, $7,000 per person, right? Um, how can they be more efficient? <laughs> Why are they doing it so much better than us? Well, in a lot of cases, it's because of the single payer system that it's just better managed than this mishmash we have. Again, let's go back to what we just talked about in terms of, of course, of the federal deficit and the need to deal with that. Well, remember, the big part of that deficit, the big problem with the long run spending is really Medicare, all the spending we do on seniors. And if you really want seniors to have health care, well, we better figure out how to deliver it cheaper. And that means having a really long, hard look at our system and looking over at Europe and figuring out what they what they do and why they're actually able to deliver equally as good a quality healthcare as uh, for a much lower price. Now, what's interesting, of course, about that is there is this idea. You, there's a group of people out there that you suggest this and they'll, they'll literally sneer, oh, socialize medicine. But that's not the way to think about it, right? Um, 
Two things on that front. I love the market. I believe in the market. I was trained to appreciate the value of markets. But I also spent a lot of time talking about what, when and how markets don't work, what kind of conditions exist where markets are not necessarily the most efficient way of doing things. And by the way, the vast majority of those reasons can be applied to healthcare. Germany does it different than France, which does it different than the Netherlands, which does it different than Japan. One of the things the United States needs to take a step from is this idea that somehow or other we're so uniquely wonderful that we don't have anything to learn from anybody else. That's preposterous. Europeans are very sophisticated nations that run very well, and we have a wealth of models to pick and choose from. We should be over there studying what they do, how they do it, and let's take the best from every system and build the best care healthcare system in the world. We live in a world where hyperbolic headlines dominate reasoned analysis. It's the, the Twitterverse, you know, that and, and where, where these one-liners pass as good policy debate. No, we have to go back to the good old days where you actually sat down and had reasoned, logical debates based on data and analysis. And, and that has gone away. And it's, it's, it's scary. There is no nuance when it comes to policymaking, when it comes to our lawmakers, really, I think on both sides of the aisle, it's something that Absolutely. unites them. Yeah. And it's scary to see um, as a citizen who's just hoping that, you know, we're not balancing our country on the backs of children and future grandchildren. But it sounds to me like what you're saying is that, in fact, we are. So do you have optimism about the Biden administration? Are there a few things that you say if they could just accomplish those two things, that would be huge for us? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, I got to tell you, obviously, we have to wait for the results of the election in Georgia to have a sense of how much leverage the Biden administration will actually have. Right. right. Um Almost assuredly, they won't be able to take both those seats, in which case they're going to face um, a very seasoned, tough veteran known as Mitch McConnell, who will undoubtedly do everything in his power to undermine anything they try to accomplish and will look very much like Obama's last four years did, which is to say that not much is going to occur at all. And, and my hope is, is that somehow or other he can begin the process of bringing us together. Um, go back to what I was just saying about this, this world we live in, where, where everything turns immediately into hyperbolic, hysterical headlines. Headlines that are dividing the nation more and more so. We're retreating into our different camps. And, you know, for anybody who thought that the victory of Biden was a watershed, I would remind them that 70 million Americans voted for Trump. We're not united under Biden. It's just the same extremism getting worse and worse. We need to start pulling together. We need to have a moment. The pandemic could have been that. Um, this pandemic could have been the thing that helped us find that center ground again. It didn't. I mean, it's amazing to me that even something as simple as wearing a face mask has turned into a political debate, right? That's not reasonable. It's, it's just not. And you're wearing a face mask is not a big deal. It's not a threat to your liberty. Put it on. Yet that's divided us. Sadly, 
history suggests that we need a bigger crisis, perhaps, <laughs> to, for us to find our common bounds again. Y- you would have thought this was it, but it clearly wasn't. I don't know what it's going to, go, going to be. And perhaps Biden will be able to figure out some way of reaching out to people on the other side to try and bring us together, to try and us to find that, that point of compromise that is the centerpiece of a democracy. Chris, you've thrown an enormous amount of cold water on this already very cold day in this, uh, <laughs> as we are sitting here at home in a surge upon yeah. a surge, and much of it entirely rational. And so I appreciate that. And now we are going to end the episode on what I suspect might be a lighter note, but I don't know, having really just met you a few moments ago. So we always yeah. end the episodes by asking our guests the same three questions. Uh, Your answers will be either uh, continue to be massively depressing or not. We'll see where we go. Mm -hmm. Question number one, which famous person dead or alive would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Oh, wow. Alexander Hamilton. In the news lately because of his support of the presidential pardon power. Um, well, yeah, perhaps. Um, but I'd like to invite him because he was someone who was fundamental in writing our constitution. And clearly he wrote that constitution with a mindset that someone like Trump could become president someday, you know? And, and I would just like to hear and I I would like to see and hear his reaction to what our world is, what our world looks like today. I just like, I would like to have a man of of that incredible intellectual capacity give me his opinion on on what this is all about. I I think that would be amazing. Oh, I wouldn't want to put him through that, but I understand what you're (laughs) saying. Um, Question number two, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you get to bring one meal with you. I mean, I, I think I should have studied up ahead of time before you asked me all these questions. These are tough ones. Um, I would probably go for a Japanese omakasa. So a, a chef's selection of some of the best sushi they have. Chef's choice, which is great for all of you out there, unless you have a massive shellfish allergy, in which I would yes, say, please true. steer away from that. <laughs> and finally, you yeah. get one superpower for superpower. one hour. What is it? <sighs> Oh, well, on this one, I'm going to go fun. I want to fly. <laughs> Let me fly. We must feel so earthbound because this is our most common answer. Uh, Chris, thank you for talking with us and for playing with us at the end. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I had a great time talking with you, and I really appreciate your time. I very much appreciate it. It's great being on the on the show. And, and I would tell you from the bottom of my heart, I love these kind of conversations in a world like this, where we seem to pass policies on the basis of anecdotes and one-liners. These are the kind of conversations we need to have more of, the kind of back and forth, the debate, the discussion about data and analytics. So thank you for doing this. And I hope I get a chance to do it again. I feel exactly the same way. And I loved having this conversation and it went well beyond the total lack of nuance that frankly we see too often. So you can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. 
Again, thank you to our listeners for all of your support. If you're listening before the holidays, happy holidays. And if you're listening after, we wish you a happy new year and we'll talk to you soon.